0: More and more people are questioning the nature of what they do every day, what they do for a living, work. Uh, Freud has spoken of Leben and Arbeit, and love and work as the two prime impulses of man. And more and more the machine is co- into the conversation. In my own adventures, talking to people, I, say, I feel like a machine. I feel like a thing. I feel like a robot. I'm delighted to have as guest Dr. E.F. Schumacher, who is an economist in an original way, and yet his wisdom is ancient wisdom that has, hasn't been listened to at all. And the most recent book of Dr. Schumacher is Small as Beautiful, and the subtitle, and the subtitle is significant, Economics as if People Mattered. And his credentials are quite remarkable as far as what he has to say about work and the decentralization of, uh, of what uh, factories, of workplaces, I should say, where people have some decision-making power as to what they do. But more of this from Dr. Schumacher. I suppose we, uh, Peter Barnes, in a recent issue of The New Republic, says, I nominate him for the Nobel Prize in Economics. And you probably say amen after you hear him. I thought perhaps you might listen to an old colleague of yours, Rudy Abranovsky, his thoughts about the city decentralization. And from his voice, we go to the Prime Minister of Sweden, Olaf Palma, and his thoughts about the dilemma of work and technology today, and then you take off from there, Dr. Schumacher.
1: Thank you. But the large city is now pointless. It is now pointless that great masses of people should stream into London or into New York every day in order to do work, which they could just as well do out in uh, Greenwich or in Connecticut or in in Reading or in uh, Cambridge. Uh, I'm speaking of Cambridge, England. The fact is that communication now is such that nearly all the work that is required of people could be done practically in their own homes, certainly within a few hundred yards of their homes. It's only a historical accident that we still bring people together, as we did 150 years ago when the Industrial Revolution began. We brought them together then to work communally in factories. But with automation and with power on tap because of nuclear power, There will be no point in bringing 10 or 15,000 people into a factory, and most people will be able to do their work very close to their own community. So then each community will
0: be full as far as richness, as far as entertainment, uh, whatever it might be, uh, enrichment outside themselves, as much as a large metropolitan city today because of the compactness. That's right, Uh, that's right.
1: Such communities were uh, um, uh, founded in America um, at the beginning of the last century. Uh, Wasn't there a place called Harmony in New Hampshire? It was Robert Owen's dream, then. Robert Owen's dream, and I seem to remember still, I seem to remember visiting Harmony in New Hampshire. Uh, Now, Owen thought they were rather smaller than we now think. But nowadays, there's no reason why a community of 30 or 40,000 shouldn't be absolutely, completely independent of uh, ...and have as
0: full means as, uh, of enrichment, say, as a large metropolitan city in the world today. Increasing ...industrialization and technology, there's always an attempt by those who seek a simplistic approach to go back. Nostalgia, something here, uh, perhaps we'll talk about that when I get back, the green wave, so-called, the nostalgia for the simple life, as though it were almost Luddite in nature, as though the machines yeah. could be destroyed. Be, yes. We have to face this reality, don't we? Oh,
2: yeah. very, this is a very great debating point, because... Um, Our line is to defend industrial society as such. We have to keep it, otherwise we can't progress. Um, You can attack it in three ways. Either, say, we smash it all, and we have the revolution. And you damn well know that the day after the revolution, you have to start all over again Mm -hmm. with running at the same factories. And there goes indoor plumbing. Yeah. Second uh, is to, to go back to a society of the past. Uh, with the green wave mm-hmm. which is a way of fleeing reality. Yes, of and the third way is to try to change it from within and that is a long painstaking reformist uh, way and this we're trying to follow. It's to make the machine serve man, of course, yes, that's what amounts it amounts to, but to destroy
0: the machine. Again we come back to yes. a phony kind of nostalgia that you had to face. I thought perhaps fragments of two voices, that of Bernofsky, uh, Jay Brnofsky, who was a servant of the Cold War with you in England, and Prime of Palma. Your thoughts on hearing those two fragments, Dr. Schumacher?
3: I would say that uh, we first have to understand what's made the big cities possible. And uh, I don't want to go into a long disquisition, but it's had a lot to do with fossil fuel and with uh, oil. And the period of cheap and plentiful oil is now drawing to a close. In any case, cheap oil has already drawn to a close. And so (coughs) city life becomes more and more questionable and more and more burdensome, particularly for for the poorer sections. It's not a question of being nostalgic. They want to get out. They can't take the burden anymore. Now, it's all very well saying uh, we need the machine, but what sort of machines? <coughs> uh, if one thinks of small towns where life can be much more without those pressures and impediments that one encounters in the, in the monster cities, if we think of these towns, a huge uh, production doesn't fit into it. A community of 30,000 cannot uh, have a motor car a unit uh, employing 20,000, otherwise there's it's, it's no community. And that is why we have embarked on a on a program, and we've been at it for about 10 years, to develop the technology that would fit the rural areas. Without technology, man is condemned to a sort of drudgery all day long. He needs technological help, but the present technology it, it has developed in the direction of what I call giantism and an, uh, a degree of complexity, which is awe-inspiring and also an, a, a, a degree of capital intensity so that only people already rich and powerful can, can have it. The others must sort of fit in. Or well, the conglomerate kind of rich and powerful can have it, yeah. Yes, people already established and the great mass, ever-increasing masses of people, they are told the first commandment is thou shalt adapt yourself. Adapt yourself to perhaps the most utterly boring work, Uh, adapt yourself to the necessity that Bronowski refers to, of spending an hour getting to work, and an hour getting away from work, Uh, and then somehow find their compensations in so-called leisure time. I believe that the the quality of the leisure time is determined by the quality of the work you do during working time, but that's another Mm matter. In order to implement any of the ideas, uh, for people who want to drop out of the city, what are they going to drop into? To implement any of these ideas, you require a small-scale technology. So I was saying technology has become too large, too complicated, too capital-intensive, and also too violent, hence the ecological problems. So what uh, some of us are involved in is to look in the other direction, and say, aren't we now, in 1974, intelligent enough to uh, create a technology that is small, and that means not infinitely small, but uh, fittingly small, back to the human scale so that the human mind can encompass it. Uh, the same goes for organizations. Uh, co- a technology that isn't so infernally complex so that people have to spend half their life being trained for something that is not of intrinsic interest a technology that uh, uh, can be used by people who are not already rich and powerful and also a technology that is essentially nonviolent not going ahead with a violent technology uh, uh, cracking problems with a sledgehammer so that the debris of of the problem then creates 12 new problems which then are s- when y- when you say that is not violence, you're referring to the
0: violence not only of that of destroying our, our uh, environment as well, but also what it does to the person working the machine, the, nat- say, the, the assembly line worker on auto plant, the spot welder,
3: the that violence to him. That is a violence yeah. which uh, is not recognized as a violence because we recognize only things that are done to people's bodies, not what, what is being done to their souls. But these people are fathers and mothers. They have to bring up children, if uh, during work hours they are depleted of psychic energy, uh, they come home and uh, can't be educators. So uh, they they are the gap fillers of the automation process, and all this arises from this monstrous size, complexity, capital intensity. You use the phrase that the phrase uh, that
0: d- is the nature of your of your approach. In What's the phrase? In inter- between. Intermediate, intermediate. Intermediate, intermediate technology. That's right. That's the phrase. You're not a, to make it clear, Dr. Mark is not a Luddite. You're aware of the necessity of a good deal of the machines of our day. You prefer the word tools, which is rather significant. But
3: intermediate technology. Well, the whole thing arose um, in the third world, where I had often been called to advise governments on what to do with the rural areas. After all, that's where the bulk of the people are, and that's what all the people in the world live from. After all, food is grown in the rural areas and not in the big cities. What do we do with the rural areas? There I find a technology in the third world that is very, very low, very low level, and not good enough to sustain the population at a a tolerable standard. And the only other technology that's normally offered is a very high technology. High. This is no word of praise. It's high in the sense that it requires a great deal of capital. It's on a large scale. It's infinitely complex. But between the very low and the very high, there's virtually nothing. You discuss. You talk. You cite
0: cases in your book. Uh, in the uh, small, small is beautiful economics as people mattered. You speak of the two million villages, which is the bulk of the population, and you cite three cases of this high technology and not at all good the Volta Dam project in Ghana sponsored by the US, the Aswan Dam project in uh, Egypt sponsored by the Soviet Union, a textile mill of Africa. Would you mind dwelling on this? Because this to me is almost a classic case of what you're talking about. Cases, what you're talking about.
3: Since you mentioned dams, w- 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 what, w- what is the problem? Sometimes you have, of course, a, a flood control problem, but normally dams are put up for, for, for I- irrigation, but uh, On the whole in most parts of the world uh, The good Lord sends the water where it's wanted He sends it In some places very uh, at very irregular intervals in England He sends it most of the time but in (laughs) other countries in great big blobs (laughs) if the run uh, the country runs off the land Into the river and out its to the sea where it gets contaminated with salt water then uh, there is a sort of modern mentality that, uh, mentality that says, let's build a desalination plant, which probably costs $300 million. Well, even if they get the $300 million, even if it is built and even if it works, you only have clean water in one place, whereas you want it over the whole width of the country. So we say, no, let's hold the water where it's fallen and where it's wanted. For this, you need a small-scale technology. Now, if you survey the literature, you find... Aswan Dam, Volta Dam, how to do these things, that's extremely well documented. There are contractors who can do all that. But if you say a small dam to hold the water where it's wanted, where is the documentation? Who will teach it? The engineers that come from the rich countries, they say, oh, no, this small stuff is uneconomic. We can't do it. But uh, what uh, are they going to die economically or live un- uneconomically? <laughs> you know, this is, this is the question. Just if I just read from uh, your book Dr. Schumacher, the very point
0: Schumacher describes industries demanding such advanced expertise, such refined materials to finish their luxurious products they cannot employ local labor that is the indigenous labor of these third world countries and or or use local resource, must import skills and goods from Europe and America and then you cite these cases, so what happens to the people there? They become just uh, adjuncts.
3: Yes now an increasing number of Overseas governments are are swinging right over. They realize that this is the wrong road. It leaves out the people. It also creates a maximum of political insecurity uh, and exacerbates the three problems, as I would put it. uh, First, mass flight of people from the land into big cities, which are already unmanageable. Secondly, mass unemployment, because this kind of development doesn't produce jobs. It's a very labor-saving, highly capitalized Mm, type of industrial activity and thirdly the, the threat or actuality of hunger so they're swinging right over and say let's have the small intelligent small scale technology so that we can involve the people and the people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps uh, let's produce the bootstraps what's that phrase you say uh,
0: to give someone a fish is one thing but to give someone to teach someone to fish not that the uh where we don't know how to fish, but to, t- to give someone fishing tackle as well, but to teach someone how to make it. That's basically right. talking about finding their own sense of respect in the work too. That's
3: right, right. that's right. And their own independence. Uh, but this now is quite clearly not applicable yeah. only to the poor countries, ah, no, but also right. to the, to the, um, to some extent, underdeveloped regions or denuded regions of the rich countries. I mean, there are are very uh, innumerable cases where the population gets polarized into a few megalopolitan areas. Uh, The country is virtually denuded of people. Life becomes intolerably dull. The young leave. I was in a province not all that far from here, of another country, where they said the average age of the rural population is 56. The young leave not because they don't want to stay there. No, they leave because there aren't any job opportunities there. And there is tremendous overcrowding in a few big cities. And so they, they go to a large or a, a megalopolis
0: where they get a job that is dehumanizing to a great extent. That's they right. get a job yeah. on the huge plant in Detroit or, mm-hmm. or in Chicago or in some particular complex in Pittsburgh where they do work as a machine would do it or serve the machine, tend the machine. That's right. So we have a, a triple bind here. What's not being done in the third world countries, what's not being done in uh, the denuded areas of a rich country, and, what's even b- and what is not being done in the big cities to the humanization of work is what you're talking about.
3: That's right. And, and, and then society as a whole becomes increasingly ungovernable because people become, they may not know precisely why they're unhappy. They say, well, my wage packet is increasing. So they ask for still a h- higher wages, because that's the only compensation they can find, uh, then to get more wages and spend it on more goods. But that, again, doesn't make <laughs> them happy. <laughs> so one is in a sk- squirrel cage. And if, uh, if, mm-hmm. if we don't correct it, uh, I have no doubt that um, all problems will exacerbate. We have seen.
0: Uh, daily you see, read about, and I've come across cases of what might be called sabotage, conscious or unconscious bad craftsmanship, not because the person's a bad craftsman, because of the nature of the dullness, the deadness of his work uh, you point out, escapism, one way or another or alcoholism, one way or another or nervous breakdowns we see this more and more, obviously
3: related to work. That's right. Well now, you see, we're told that science can, can solve all, pro- all problems, even the most obscure That we can look forward to fusion energy Just to give an example uh, We know we can land a man on the moon But when it's suggested we are now clever enough with science and technology To create a small-scale nonviolent technology People throw up their hands in horror and despair. They say it can't be done There is no theoretical argument which will establish that it can be done or can't be done. The only thing to establish it is to make the design studies go ahead and do it. Now, we've done this now for 10 years, and every time we've done it, it succeeded, and you can have perfectly viable small-scale production so that even in a town of 20,000, most of the things that people want can be produced locally. Uh, Dr. Schumacher,
0: I'm just about to come to ask you just what your suggestions are as you have in this book, because some will say, "Of course, I agree with E. F. Schumacher about this. Of course, he's right." But how, how in this highly technological, or age, can we do this? And uh, Dr. Schumacher has very definite suggestions indeed. But before that, I'm thinking about what you said a moment ago about the dehumanization and uh, the nature of how people react and revolt in their own way. I met this. Farm implement work, I was looking for it here. In Moline, where farm implement m- implements are made, he says the bad craftsman is rewarded and the good craftsman is penalized because the big thing is gross national product, production. And the good craftsman takes his time. Therefore, he makes less, so they penalize him. The bad craftsman shoots out a whole amount. Of course, you sell more, there's more repair work to be done, too. So, this again is what you're talking about.
3: Yes, but to find good repair chaps is becoming increasingly difficult because machines can't do the repair work. You need actually people yeah. for that. And you need careful people. You need craftsmen, in fact. Yeah. Although, of course, the design has gone in a further direction of material wastefulness, namely don't bother to repair, rip it out and replace it. Yeah. Uh, are
0: really talking then about a feeling of creativity and thus pride in one's work? How then? Now we come to your your suggestions and something you have seen happen particularly at a certain company in England called Scott Bader will speak of that no but your suggestions intermediate technology
3: Now then, question is always um, if you have uh, a passionately held idea uh, you, you, you spend a certain number of possibly years just preaching this idea then comes the the really existential moment when you ask yourself are you only a, a talker or a doer And then you're beset by temptations to say, well, I can't do anything. I have a family. I've got a full-time job. Uh, Who am I, particularly with regard to such a big problem? That moment came about 10 years ago. And with two friends, we said, all right, if we have to do it, let's start. Start is a magical word. Just start. Well, we have no money. Well, then start without money. We can find enough money just to register a company uh, to get uh, charity status for it, because it's it's charitable work in a sense, uh, to get letterheads printed, to get a friend to let us have a room, and to put a nameplate on the door. That's how one starts. Now the question is, if you want to work in technology, mm, are you going to build your own workshops for this? You need a lot of money. But modern society has everything. It's got, it's got countless research establishments, universities, university departments, uh, industry, the whole of industry. So. One has to go and see if the work that needs to be done will be done in already existing establishments. For instance, all the work that we are doing on agricultural equipment is done at the National College for Agricultural Engineering in in Bedfordshire, not far from from London. All the work we do on food technology is done by the National College of Food Technology. I have my full-time people outbedded into these institutions. Now, what's the position there? In the last uh, so many years, we've had an immense inflation in the number of students. All these students want to take some kind of a degree. They can get a degree only if they do some original work. And the unfortunate professors are hard up to think of additional subjects. Now, we can give them any number of subjects. Uh, A a general uh, line for subject is, all right, we know how to do it on a big scale. Can you ferret out how it can be done efficiently on a small scale? We had a problem of metal bending in order to get the rim around the wooden wheel for ox carts in in Africa. Metal bending, I mean, Pittsburgh, in Sheffield, in Bochum, there's no problem. But out in the the field, in the small town, you don't want the big machine, you can't afford it. It, There isn't a market for that. Can you devise a small implement to do it? Of course you can. Uh, This metal bending instrument Uh, has been scaled down, as it were, in terms of capital expenditure, by a factor of 100. And previously, the smallest thing that was available needed electricity to drive it. And this can be operated by two men. Now, I'm not saying that fits into Chicago, but it fits into the, the millions of places that are not Chicago, where there are tens and hundreds, even thousands of millions of people. So the the way of procedure is not to drop out of society and start from scratch. I mean, that uh, is only for heroes who want to establish that it can be done. So I take my hat off to them. But it's also a one-off phenomenon. The the art of the game is to mobilize, to be a catalyst that mobilizes already existing resources. People say to me, industry would never touch it. That is not my experience. Of course, you have to have a, an intelligent approach to industry. You find many highly intelligent people in industry. And you tell them, look, you have been going for the big, complex, highly capital-intensive stuff. Uh, the time comes where this may be very dicey. Any, even the best-designed ocean steamer carries a lifeboat. Wouldn't it be wise for you to also have a lifeboat? If there's a demand for small-scale e- equipment, can you meet it? If you haven't done the design studies in good time, you can't. Why don't you help us to do these design, s- uh, design studies? And once you have created it, every time it turns out the demand for it comes from all over the world. Of course, this is you're
0: saying of course, throughout. You've been saying that the imagination has not yet been touched. The, the ability is there, the technique is all there. The idea, gi- we're so obsessed with gigantism, is what you're saying, that demeans man, diminishes man even more, instead of the adjusting it to his size. Yes, and without, yes. I, as I make quite clear the audience, without going back to Green Wave simplistic approach, that's not at all, to now, to this 20th century, last part of it, we take, perhaps we take a slight pause, and then Dr. Schumacher, you can cite a case in point, or a dramatic case in point, the company, Scott Bader, this plastics company in England that is so clear, it seems to me, in its approach. And this is done within the framework of that society. And there can be many Scott Bader's, is what you're implying.
3: Yes, this is, uh, to some extent, a different subject. Although we have struggled now at Scott Bader for 23 years to really humanize the work process in this chemical factory, but uh, the schoolboy calls chemistry stinks. And the factory just stinks the (laughs) same as 23 years ago. Yes, working conditions have been improved, but the work is essentially dull. Now, um, it is not as as if in those 23 years since we put that firm on a common ownership basis that uh, great improvements have not been made, but not specifically in the work process. That turned out to be unalterable. What we have done instead is to say we are a community, We don't spend all the week at the factory. The week has 168 hours and only 38 hours are spent in the factory or in the office or in the laboratory. What are we doing with all the other hours? Well, some we need for sleeping, but if you make a big allowance for sleeping and uh, various other necessary functions, you still have more time left than all your working time. What do you do with that? Well, modern society offers them television, but television has not yet made anybody happy. It may have mm, helped him to, 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 to kill time painlessly. You said kill time, Interesting phrase, that uh, verb, to kill, kill time, time yeah, it's interesting. Kill time. These people have intelligent brains, intelligent hands. They want to do something with it. Mm. Now they all have to have some motor transport to the factory because it's there's no public transport. And as you know, I mean, there's a special relationship between man and his car. He often, I'm sorry to say, treats his car better than he treats his wife. Um, But when the car breaks down, he can't do much about it because he hasn't got the proper gear. Well then, we are a community. Why don't we build ourselves a community workshop where we repair our own cars? Uh, Now this, the chaps did this. Um, A couple of old age pensioners are running it. This was in England. In England, under the auspice of Scott Bader a couple of old age pensioners are running it, they're happy now, they have a function, and when the car breaks down, they just pull it into this workshop and repair it themselves. The cost to them is just the cost of materials, and then they know it's going to be well done because they do it themselves, they're as happy as sand boys. This uh, is being gradually extended to create more and more facilities which we to some (coughs) extent also open to people who are not in the, in the, in the, Scott commonwealth. <coughs> um, uh, uh, the next stage was gardening. Every Englishman has a little garden. And uh, for that he needs some equipment, which he probably buys two or three times in a lifetime. And very often he buys rotten equipment. So let's have a plant pool for gardening equipment, which can be then very expertly selected so that it really works and does the job well. Again, a couple of old age pensioners administer it and the chaps can get at the best tools for their job Mm -hmm. which personally and individually they could never afford. Uh, We haven't got beyond that yet Uh, but the next thing on the program is a community woodworking shop because they love making their own furniture but where do you do it? On the kitchen table you get trouble with your wife. Out Mm -hmm. in the shed then it rains and uh, tools get rusty also, you can't, as an individual, afford the best tools, but collectively you can. Now this is trying to work out another lifestyle, which has been made possible, because uh, it's been put on a common ownership basis. So we come to the matter of common ownership, the matter of decision-making, and perhaps
0: the story of Scott Potter, in which you play a role too, even the story of the British coal board to some extent. Uh, Dr. E. F. Schumacher is my guest. The basis of the conversation is a book that's very beautiful and important, Small is Beautiful is the title, the subtitle is economics as if people mattered rather than goods. Uh, Harper, Torchbooks, the Publishers, and we'll return in a moment to Dr. Schumacher and this story. More about man, woman, creativity and work. Resuming the conversation with Dr. Schumacher, you mentioned Scott Botter, this company, and you speak of the nature of work, of people finding their own way of doing it together, uh, in which they, they, they see the en- end result of what they did, in contrast to an assembly line worker who just shoots wells into the car and this snake known as the assembly line. But the company itself, the story, is a very astonishing one, uh, dealing as it does with that's what seemed to be a vision, utopian yet quite a reality.
3: It's not utopian, because utopia means it doesn't exist anywhere, whereas Scott, uh, Scott Bader exists. Yeah. <laughs> it has been in existence. Now, um, on that basis, for uh, 23 years and During those 23 years it's go- it, it's it's gone from strength to strength. Yeah, this was a plastics. Plant yes plant. It's the leading firm making polyester in Britain oh. uh, with, uh, with 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 uh, licensees all over the world and uh, it was set up by uh, an originally Swiss uh, gentleman Ernest Bader a Quaker who as a young man had felt very much aggrieved he was penniless And he was a little employee and he said to himself, all my life I'm going to be pushed around as a little employee. Uh, But he wasn't because of outstanding ability, there's no doubt about that at all. And then he carried on and he became in fact the boss. And at the age of 60 he sort of remembered himself, remembered his own youth and said, good Lord, what am I doing? Now I'm pushing these people around. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend my life like this. And so he went and consulted various people, and that's how I got in touch with him. Uh, Let's make uh, something quite new, a new constitution for the firm, putting the whole thing on a common ownership basis. I don't want to be the capitalist. I'm quite well off now, and I don't want to become rich. Why should I become rich? I can't take it with me. Uh, (coughs) And uh, let's, uh, um, let's implement certain basic truths. Now, the first basic truth is that size matters. If, uh, if, if the, the, the working group is too big, you can't know the people anymore as people. Now, <coughs> rightly or wrongly, we came to the conclusion 400 is about the limit where you can still know people as people and know something about their real human circumstances. So we set in the self-imposed constitution we shall not grow beyond a payroll of 400. That was number one. Number two, the spread of income must be, uh, must be reasonable. Uh, you can't have immensely highly paid people and then lots of lo- lowly paid people. Uh, and so we established a relationship between the, the youngest, the most inexperienced, the lowliest worker, and the highest, most highly paid before any kind of taxation. We would like to get it a bit closer together, but we find it still necessary, with the approval of the community, to limit it to one to seven. That's number two. Number three, of course, uh, we were sure of ourselves that we will not go go kaput. Uh, What do we do with the profits? Now, the ruling about the profits is after the necessary reinvestment in the firm, and of course, taxes, Um, up to 40% can be distributed. The other 60% taking care of taxes and reinvesting. 40% to the 400 people, tons. No, no. For every pound that we distribute to ourselves, the members of the the Commonwealth, one pound is set aside for some outside voluntary noble purpose. Uh, Now, this uh, has had also a magical effect within a radius of 100 miles it's now very difficult to find anything that ought to be done is not being done because the welfare state doesn't look after it because it's all been done by Scott Parler. There's a boys club they wanted a football pitch they have it now after 23 isn't years. is something else involved in contributing that extra
0: pound uh, pr- to the outside charity or need the
3: people who do it also become socially aware That's of right. the events
0: outside the very work place. That's
3: right. It's their initiative. They, they suggest it. They say, I know there's a home for the blind. They're short of Braille. Uh, surely we can do that out of our funds. And so it's done. But it's never done by the bosses. There are no bosses. It's done by the people themselves. And, and uh, they are old age people. They're all looked after with parcels. Do they have equal? How is it? Do they have
0: when they have a vote on a matter as they may? How is it done? Is is it it a town meeting sort of fashion or? All the employees meet. Uh, uh, This
3: Uh, this has to be worked out with the greatest possible care, because there are subjects and subjects. There are subjects where every man is simply equally competent because he is a man or a woman. In this context, man embraces woman. Uh, So. Uh, There are other subjects where the layman must have a chance of cross-examining the experts, but it would be fanciful to imagine that the layman can take a majority decision. Uh, So this whole idea of participation in management or workers' control is easy to talk about Mm. and easy to write books about. Almost sounds like a United Nations problem with small nations and big ones, in a sense, too. That's right, you have to, all the time, you have to deal it wi- with it item by item, yeah. but it is necessary to distinguish between those subjects where people, as people, have an equal right yeah. to to co-determine, and other subjects where one has to listen very careful to the expert, yeah. but one wouldn't let the expert just do it according to his own devices. One brings in the people's interest now. <coughs> On some subjects, it's the whole community Mm -hmm. that decide. On other subjects, it's what we call the community council. The community is divided into 16, you might call it constituencies, which each of them produce a representative. Mm. And uh, you might call it the parliament of the firm is the community council. And they can participate in company uh, policy, but you can't have 400 people doing that. But nonetheless
0: there is this communal interest and decision-making power and also the nature of work. There are two other things too, that n- no one can be dismissed unless for gross misconduct and no
3: sales to customers whose purpose might be war-oriented. That's quite right. There the old Quaker spirit comes yeah. through, but the community has freely accepted that. We will not sell anything where we have reason to believe it might be used for warlike purposes. purposes. Oh, now we come to the big question, Scott Barter. When this was first Proposed by Ernest Bader.
0: And now I'm sure that there were many of the wise men of economics and the financiers were saying,
3: This thing is going to fold, right? That's right. What happened? Well, what happened is that, um, as I said before, the thing has gone from strength to yeah. strength. Uh, we almost rejoice when there is a real national difficulty. When we had uh, electricity only for three days a week, yeah. It was no problem at all to say, come on, chefs, we're all in the same boat together. Nobody can be cl- declared redundant. Uh, we, we'll never draw. We can't draw a line to say, in order to protect our livelihood, all you people will be thrown to the wolves. So let's all get together. We're all in the same boat. We have to reschedule everything in order to fit those processes where we need electricity into those three days. The firm didn't lose one ounce of production during that three-day week. I'm not saying there isn't a single other firm that has done the same, I do not know, but certainly in the chemical industry that was virtually unique. Well, is Baderism, has it caught on, is it catching on in Britain? That is the great disappointment of old Ernest Bader, who is now in his 80s, because uh, like Robert Owen, you know, he thought, I have now solved the problem. We've never had a strike. We have problems, of course. Human life is full of problems. Right. But all those absurd problems we don't have, and yet it doesn't catch on. First of all, because there are not so uh, many, uh, many people with the vision of Ernest Bader, who realize that uh, to become a millionaire really is not much fun, and that he has far greater social security in the turbulent times into which we are moving than anyone who has a lot of money at the stock exchange, uh, or can be expropriate. Ernest Bader cannot be expropriated because there is nothing to expropriate and the community as as a whole is supporting every one member the firm cannot be taken over because it's not for sale, it's organized I suppose here one would say as as an inalienable trust so you have have that security so it seems to be the perfect formula and yet it doesn't find many it finds some imitators but uh, I don't think this is something to be despondent over because a wind is rising uh, where many of the traditional ways of conducting business and industry are really called into question and become to some extent inoperative and at least there is something a sail that can catch the wind we are now being almost overrun with inquiries precisely how do you do it, can we have a copy of your constitution and all that thing. In fact sometimes it becomes so burdensome that you yeah. can't carry <laughs> on with your do work. These queries come from industrialists too? From industrialists. Ah, they do. Oh, we're not interested yeah. in yeah. it. In well, that's interesting because so the reason I say this, this
0: book, Working, which deals with the thoughts of ordinary people, the great men and their discontent and their dreams and yearnings and they're very articulate a remarkable number of inquiries from industrialists. I right. don't know. They obviously know something is churning underneath. They don't quite know what to do about it. Now it seems to me that
3: your suggestions, Dr. Schumacher, would be right up the alley of a great many of them. Yes, uh, uh, of in, right. the, in the earlier phases we got many requests of of young academics wanting to write a thesis about it. But um, th- that's all right. Now the. It comes increasingly from people who are themselves bothered. And uh, we have now found quite a number of imitators, imitators quite apart from the other firms that we have uh, caused to be set up on, on, on a similar basis. You see, we are not w- we're n- determined not to grow above about 400. But under the pressure which makes growth necessary, what do you do? Then you do what nature does. You don't let one cell expand until it bursts. You divide it up into two cells, so there are two. And uh, now there are four of these things, three of them having been sprouted by, by Scott Barlow. That's what you mean then by organic technology. That is, is organic, yeah. uh, yes, also organic thinking. And organic it goes thinking. beyond the technology, it's in the, the methodology that. Types of uh, organizations. It's the
0: gigantism that you find The people continuously, a certain unimaginative of traditional economists and, and some of these are, liberals, whatever that may mean, like Walter Heller and others, speak of growth, the essential necessity for growth. And you see it, on the contrary, as a menace if it continues unrestrained. You see something else.
3: Yes, but I want to be very uh, precise. What is growing? If mm-hmm. one cell grows to a monster size, this is very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe all sorts of growth. In an organic way, by the division of cells into self-supporting units, maybe that is perfectly all right. If um, if the growth uh, means uh, monster cities and a denuded countryside, that's terrible. But if there's another form, that uh, that nuclei are everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, which fits into the landscape, which fit into the ecology, and because they are not so uh, have not grown themselves to such a monstrous size. they don't need so much fuel. You can send little mm. Johnny round the corner mm. to do your yeah. purchases instead of getting yeah. into a car to a yeah. supermarket.
0: So Isn't is unrelated then to what in one of your sequences you call Buddhist economics, economics? You worked as an advisor to UNU in Burma as well as to Nehru. And the fact th- that you're talking about the connection of nature, nature itself, and, indus- and industrialization. You see them working rather than together rather than the industrialization against nature—we uh, call the economics of permanence.
3: Yes, if I may take uh, use slightly sort of theological language, it's not that man has been put in uh, into this world to leave nature alone. Nature has, I believe, been given to man so that he can live and fulfil his purpose. Uh, we won't discuss now what the purpose is. Okay. Um, but uh, man's task is to perfect nature, not to bully her around and, and just exploit her. And this, uh, uh, this attitude used to prevail in most civilizations that have, that have had any long survival. And this is what I mean. Technology has become violent. Uh, people, intellectuals, talk about a battle against nature. And all I can say is, if perchance we win this battle, we shall find ourselves on the losing side. Um, But uh, you—you were
0: describing a circumstance in Burma, and how there seems to be an easier approach, easier, a more humane approach. The question I would ask, you know, I don't know, as a Western man living in a highly technologicalized city, Chicago, do the Burmese people have what we consider an adequate standard as far as food, clothing, and shelter? Don't know. I ask you this, I ask this as an illiterate in the, on the subject of Burmese life.
3: Whether it's adequate or not, uh, that decision must be left to the Burmese people okay. themselves. There are, of course, there's all the glitter of the advanced society. We are all responsive to it. Uh, you know, it's some marvelous things oh. that can be done. this fast traveling, if you have to travel. So whether it's, in their eyes, adequate this, I'm not prepared to say yes or no to. But if you look at it from the outside, it's an
1: enchanting
3: way of life. I mean, they have enough food in Burma. It's not like India. They are beautifully dressed. They are the jolliest people that I've ever come across. They live in houses that are designed for their climatic conditions. Um, Really. for for the outsider, one, one, one feels, what on earth could they still want? Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: Want, yeah. but still they also want to modernize in some ways, and so good luck to them.
0: Modernization, you hope, you trust, mm. as they uh, tru- uh, depending on, the on their own sense of own common sense, seeing what's happened to us. Perhaps it's funny because yes. remember seeing in newsreel the Soviet Union. The people there like us because people saw these automobiles and crowds were forming to buy those cars to get those cars, and I was hollering, "Stop it! Don't do it, you clods! Don't do it!" <laughs> thinking about our own, what cars have done. But I'm thinking a provocative question. You spoke of Gandhi and the gradualism, Gandhi's idea, you know, uh, as production by the masses rather mass production. Yet somehow and how a, a cataclysmic change cannot can demoralize. Yet we have to I introduce the subject of China. Yet in China, how else could the hungry have been fed, if not by a cataclysmic change?
3: Well, uh, let's be accurate about this. The the Manchu dynasty collapsed in 1911. Uh, Virtually from 1911 to 1949. China was the sickest part of humanity. Uh, Civil war, children being sold into slavery, Millions of people perishing from floods the, the river or rivers of sorrow uh, And uh, out of this terrible suffering there came some Extremely steely and thoughtful men uh, I'm not recommending them for any other society. I'm just reporting but what, what happens Mao and En Lai and others there were men who had really thought it all through who had been through fire, through real hell, uh, but made a positive notion out of it. And they have transformed China from the sickest of all sicknesses to a healthy country. Every traveler, I have not personally been there, but two of my colleagues can come back, and you can read it in books and countless reports. There is no starvation in China. Everybody is decently fed. Life may be drab through Western eyes, but... Drabness is a secondary thing. They are all clothed, they are all housed, and they are all working, uh, and and they are all one hears, with some ex- exception, doubt, so all cheerful. Particularly the children are so boisterous and happy that uh, you, when you look ac- across to other parts of yeah. Asia, well, of course, that's what I, w- I was. Implying that, of course. Mm. How could that have been done, though, without
0: a cat in a country so huge? Without a, it could not be done a Gandhi-esque way. That's the point I'm trying to raise. A difficult thing.
3: No. Th- this is based on real insights of what needs to be done. Also, on the Gandhian insight, there is enough enough for ev- everybody's needs, even in a very poor society. But not for everybody's or anybody's greed. Now, such insight can come through pure thought, pure insight, or oh, it comes, thru- comes through suffering. But our task in life is to avoid this suffering. Yeah, of course. Now, Gandhi, uh, who has been put on a pedestal as the father of the nation, while the nation is going quite a different way, Gandhi was the most competent third world economist that I have ever come across. Uh, and he says, uh, one step at a time, but get moving mm. and start with the people. Try and find means, and that again is small-scale, intermediate technology, to turn the people's idle hours into something productive. Upgrade the people. Uh, Treat the central government as a superstructure which is there to serve the people and not to lord it over them. This whole Gandhi theory is absolutely right. Now, some people outside India are following it. You know what occurred to me—a wild thought—that China indeed is Gandhi-esque.
0: This may sound strange for a communist That's right. country. Is that Gandhi's phrase, y- uh, quoting you, Not "production ma- by the masses, rather than mass"? Pre- precisely, China's production that is precisely by the masses. Precisely what it is. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Here we have the non-violent Gandhi's philosophy
3: practiced by communist China. That's right. And they have learned it through suffering, whereas Gandhi got to it through insight. Now there's no reason. Nyerere uh, in Tanzania has got to, to it through insight so he's trying to follow that of course uh, things with variations uh, adapted to the conditions of the country. Where does
0: that leave us now your thoughts uh, Dr. Schumacher this has been a very provocative and a very exhilarating I, I trust for listeners as well as for myself our industrialized countries those in which we live you made suggestions that which can be done not for the people of third world but helping them do it that is leading them in a the sense given the break the tools by themselves now we come to the people living in the
3: large cities Let's say chicago what outlook here it may well be that the very large cities for a long time to come cannot be saved uh, of course they will continue in some way but uh, uh, lots of people will want to get out they want to drop out of the city and w- I believe one has to really take steps uh, to provide something they can drop into, because merely dropping out is not good mm-hmm. enough. Now, what can they drop into? I'm, of course, as a European, always amazed by the size of the United States. There's land, land, land. It may be difficult to get hold of owing to certain social arrangements. Well, then they have to be challenged, these social arrangements. Um, it m- people want to do their own thing. They want to move into a better environment, better air, not so noisy, etc. Now that can be fruitful only if there is a a consistent systematic effort to create the livelihood, the means of livelihood. This I think should involve industry and I don't ask any industrialist uh, to attend a lecture or conference over the weekend and go to the office on Monday and do the exact opposite of what he's done before. Now, now with 95%, let him carry on as before. But with 5%, he ought to give the new thing some push and, and, and some of his wealth, some of his know-how. The know-how actually to do the things rests with industry. It doesn't rest anywhere else. It doesn't rest with government. It doesn't rest with the academic institutions. So one might have to, has to find, as indeed, in a modest way, we have found ways of, of bringing industry into this. Secondly, there are the academics. Now, the academic institutions today are, in all countries, this is not specific to the United States, in a very dicey condition. The students don't on the whole believe that what they're learning is what they really want, and the professors are becoming increasingly doubtful whether what they're teaching is really what the world needs. So again, it's a matter of mobilizing the the more imaginative ones. Mm -hmm whom you can find plenty of, to say, well, now let's look at it in a different way. Instead of looking for bigness, let's look for smallness. Instead of looking for greater complexity, let's look for greater simplicity. Uh, Let's have student projects that work it out. The students will be exhilarated, that is my experience. As well as old people. And uh, students like uh, ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not a matter of age, it's Mm -hmm. a matter of the age of the heart. Uh, And then something can really happen. The pioneering groups that are doing it in isolation, they must be given the, this help from those parts of society uh, that, that I've just mentioned. And it's interesting to come back to Ernest
0: Bader, your man you know and have advised. His case, he is, it's in a sense, to the self-interest, he's very industrious because Ernest Bader is safer than most industrialists. If there's a crash, is the fact is he has almost has an autonomous Uh, an an autonomous life there, industrial in a sense. to society, of course, but much stronger than the traditional
3: big-shot industrialist. Well, let's put it this way. With With the two sides of industry battling, the industrialist, no matter how rich he is, he's got more enemies than friends. And if he loses his money, or if he's expropriated, or there's turmoil, whom has he got to lean on? Ernest Bader has 400 people who are absolutely loyal to him because no one can say he's ever exploited them. Because they also
0: have their their sense of self-respect, they have their decision-making power, and also the thing we have touched on throughout before the hour goes, the nature of creativity, work and creativity. You speak of this too.
3: That's right. right.
0: You know what might be just right, I think, uh, Dr. Schumacher, the last passage from your book if you'd read it in a sense it adds up to that it's theological and yet everything related small as beautiful as the book economics is people mattered the very significant subtitle indeed and uh, Harper's the and it? it's a powerful work it's original work and perhaps the last passage And thank you very much
3: do you want Dr. me to read it of course well the last passage I have to put on okay. my specs for this now so <coughs> we have another part of man's imaginative book Spectacles. Yes, this uh, this deals with the four traditional virtues, so carefully worked out um, in our Christian civilization. Uh, Their justice relates to truth, fortitude to goodness, and temperancia, which is a bit wider than temperance, relates to beauty while prudence, in a sense, comprises all three. This is traditional theology. The type of realism which behaves as if the good, the true, and the beautiful were too vague and subjective to be adopted as the highest aims of social or individual life, or as if they were the automatic spin-off of the successful pursuit of wealth and power, has been aptly called crackpot realism. Everywhere people ask, what can I actually do? The answer is as simple as it is disconcerting. We can, each of us, work to put our own inner house in order. The guidance we need for this work cannot be found in science or technology, the value of which utterly depends on the ends they serve, but it can still be found in the traditional wisdom of mankind. That's pretty much the, uh, the uh, philosophical essence of the book, but the book is very specific
0: indeed and a uh, powerful one. Thank you very much. Thank you.